Genesis 37 through 50. We're, I think, on week five. That's right. There's three more weeks after this. So we come this morning to chapters 43 and 44. It's a long narrative. Uh, But what I will do for us this morning is I will read verses 11 through 14 of chapter 43. And we'll spend some time going through the passage at length during the sermon. So let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word in Genesis chapter 43, verses 11 through 14. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother in Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children... I am bereaved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it this morning. And we've heard it read in a language that we understand. And we come to you now in faith and ask you to grant us eyes of faith and ears of faith and hearts of faith, that we would go beyond physical hearing, but that we would receive spiritual hearing. Father, that we would learn as you would have us learn, that you would teach us and train us and correct us and even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Father, we want to be more like Jesus in this life. And so we ask you to do your refining work through your word and the preaching of it. Father, I pray for your children, those here this morning. Bless them, O Lord, and help them. And Father, help me, your servant. Protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, thousands of people visit the Winchester Mansion in San Jose, California. This massive structure was built by Sarah Winchester, the widow of William Winchester, who you might recognize that name. He was the owner of the gun manufacturer, Winchester Repeating Arms Company, for 38 years, from 1884 until her death in 1922. This Winchester mansion was under constant construction. Teams of carpenters, masons, and other craftsmen were employed around the clock. All the time, someone was working. Various stories have been told about the reason for this very unusual practice. But most of them center on Mrs. Winchester's belief that she would be haunted She thought she would be haunted by the ghosts of those killed by her husband's rifles. And she thought that to be so unless 
she kept building the house. The results, some of you may have seen it, the result is a most bizarre structure, to say the least. It contains over 160 rooms and 40 bedrooms, 10,000 windows, and even two different basements. Not all of the 2,000 doors can be walked through. And if they can, some you may not want to walk through. One leads to an eight-foot drop into, of all things, a kitchen sink, while another leads to a 15-foot drop right outside into the garden. Staircases, long staircases, lead to nothing but the ceiling. Expensive Tiffany stained glass windows are installed in places where they get absolutely no light. And there are more secret passages than Narnia in this place. A particularly odd delight is a cabinet door that, if you can get it open, reveals a passage that extends through 30 rooms before you come out. The mansion has been described as truly nothing more than an oversized carnival funhouse. So how much did this funhouse cost Mrs. Winchester? It's believed that going back to that day, she spent almost $5.5 million, which today would amount to about $70 million. $70 million for this funhouse. She never regretted spending one penny, though. She was asked many times, and one close friend recalls her saying, it's a small price to pay to have peace. It's a small price to pay to have some peace. Peace is often costly, isn't it? Peace is often costly. At times, peace flows like a river, but a lack of it can become a dam that stores up a reservoir of wrath. At times, peace can be abundant as air itself, but a lack of it can feel like toxic fumes to the lungs. At times, peace can be a fruit that satisfies even the most restless of appetites. But a lack of it, a lack of it can make even the finest wine taste as sour as vinegar. So when peace eludes us, when peace is far from us, we will often do anything. We will often find any way to feel its refreshment, to fill our lungs with it, and to taste its goodness once again. And as silly as it may sound, this woman is proof that we'll even spend millions of dollars on fun houses for adults to make sure that we have it, that we have peace. Well, peace, peace forms the foundation of the two chapters before us this morning. In Genesis chapters 43 and 44, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is found five times, five times in these two chapters. But beyond the word itself, the quest for peace, the need for peace, the reality of peace, peace as a concept, seeps through all the other words on these pages as well. So my aim this morning is twofold. My aim is twofold first because the narrative before us is long, two whole chapters here, I want to spend the first part summarizing for you the events contained in these two chapters. And second, I want to help you see, by God's grace, I wanna help you see how the quest for peace that is taken up by Jacob and taken up by his sons is not only matched 
by our own similar quest. But I really pray that you'll see that such a quest only reaches its final destination when we come to rest in the true and lasting peace given to us through the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with a brief summary, a brief summary of these two chapters before us, chapters 43 and 44. And we start this morning where we left off last week. In fact, we read some of these verses last week. Remember the the famine that had been gripping the land has not eased. And Jacob, seeing his son sitting around doing nothing, says, why are you doing nothing? Get up and go, return to Egypt and buy grain once again for the family. But this is not an easy task. Remember when the brothers were last in Egypt, they left Simeon behind. And the only way for him to be released, for Simeon to be released to them, was not just for them to go back and get him, but they had to go back with who? With Benjamin. They had to go back with Benjamin. And to say the least, you might remember, that's a non-starter for Jacob. No way. Benjamin will not go with you. With Joseph believed to be dead, at least from Jacob's sandals where he's at, Jacob was now favoring and protecting Benjamin. He was favoring and protecting the only remaining son of his favored wife, Rachel. But rising to the occasion in chapter 43, verse 8, is Judah. He has a remarkable offer. Look there with me again at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 43. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. In verses 11 through 14, which we read, we see Jacob accepting this plan. Jacob accepts this plan and he sends the brothers along, all of them, with Benjamin. And he sends a gift for the ruler in Egypt, saying to them, look there in verse 14, we've already read it, but I see it again. He calls upon God as he had met God many years ago and God revealed himself to him as God Almighty. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother in Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Well, the brothers, the story goes on. The brothers do arrive in Egypt. They're greeted again by Joseph, who's still unrecognized by them. When Joseph sees Benjamin, he orders them brought into his house and he prepares a great feast for them. Verse 18 tells us that the brothers were afraid. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 43. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. They're worried about their livestock. I think Joseph has all the power and wealth. I don't know if he needs their donkeys. These are men who are afraid. They're very afraid. So they appeal to the steward of Joseph's house in verses 19 through 22. And and this is really surprising. They're greeted with a comforting response. Look at verse 23. 
steward replied, peace, there's the word, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So now Simeon's released, and here they are. All is made ready. The feast is ready, and Joseph then comes back. He returns to them to eat, and then several key things happen. I want to point them out to you first. In verse 26, notice, you can look there and see yourself. All the brothers greet him by bowing down to him. All of them. Sound familiar? Now that dream is finally fulfilled. All of his brothers come and bow before him. All 11. Second, after inquiring about theirs and their father's welfare, and I want you to note that while in your Bible you might see welfare and well, here these three times are used in verses 27 and 28. These are actually translations of the Hebrew word shalom. So again, it's a reference to peace. He's inquiring about his father's, their father's peace and their peace. It's what he's asking them about. After inquiring about it, Joseph finally sets his sights upon Benjamin in verse 29. And his response in verse 30 is very moving. Look with me there. After saying to him, God, be gracious to you, my son, verse 30 tells us, then Joseph rushed out, he hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. The Bible is not cold. Moses, as he tells this story, doesn't skip over the emotional parts. This is for us. This is an emotional reunion. It shows the depth of love that this one who said he had forgotten, remember he had remembered to forget and instead praise God, he hadn't forgotten his brother. He sees him before him and he weeps with compassion. Well, we see that once Joseph gathers his emotions and and returns, the third key event in the chapter happens. Verses 33 through 34, note for us, that Joseph arranges the brothers in a particular manner. This had to get them going, right? Like, what? What's happening? He seats them in order of age, from the oldest to the youngest. Imagine this. He's, the, the Egyptians and the Hebrews wouldn't have eaten together. Okay, so he's probably up on a platform at a table with his servants and his people, and here are all the Israelites there in front of him, right there, and he lines them up how to sit from Simeon all the way to Benjamin. Reuben, all the way to Benjamin. He lines them up in birth order. Even more, look what he does. In 41, 42, Benjamin receives five times the portion that the other brothers did. So the brothers got one big cut of meat. Benjamin gets five cuts of meat. He gets five times the portion. Benjamin gets more. And then I want you to see that they're amazed in verse 33. They're amazed by this. They have to be thinking, what in the world is going on here? What is going on? Well, God's going on. 
Chapter 43 closes with the fourth and final key thing. Read what it says there, right at the last few words of chapter 43, verse 34. And they drank and were merry with him. There's no other way to tell you this, but that Joseph got them drunk. Literally, they were intoxicated. That's how that would be translated, literally. They were intoxicated. It appears that Joseph is still testing his brothers. He wants to put a fog over them. He wants them to wake up in the morning and wonder where they had been because he's not done testing. Chapter 44 then brings us the events just prior to the coming dramatic climax of the entire story, which we'll get to next week in chapter 45. It was hard to hold back this week, but we get to it next week at the beginning of 45. But here in chapter 44, Joseph sends the brothers on their way back to Canaan. This time, not only with all their money, again, as he had done before, you might remember that, but this time, he takes his own silver cup, his own cup, and has it hidden in Benjamin's bag. This is no doubt a test. They're not going to remember much of what happened anyway, right? So he sends them with this cup in the bag. It's a test. And you can only imagine, <laughs> here are these brothers on their way back to Canaan, when all of a sudden the lights turn on behind them, right? This chariot comes pulling up behind them. There's no feeling like the feeling of police behind you, right? With the lights on. Was it me? Did I do something? Okay, so here they are. They, they're pulled over. They're pulled over by the steward of Joseph's house. They didn't get far. And he accuses them of stealing Joseph's cup. Look at their response. Look at their response. Chapter 44 will begin in verse 7. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. This is a, another very emotional part of this story that we might miss. Tearing their clothes, the sign of mourning is deep grief. They're very grieved over this. So the brothers turn back with the steward. They're heading back to Egypt and they have some things they're expecting. They may have not heard what the servant said, but based on their own words, they're expecting Benjamin is gonna be executed and they're gonna be servants of Joseph the rest of their lives. That has to be, that's what they've said. They have said, we'll serve you. Let that one found be punished. It appears that they've brought upon their father, Jacob, his worst nightmare. Again, put your, you know the rest of the story, but put yourself in their sandals at this point. What was Jacob worried about the most? <laughs> of course, losing Benjamin, but being, losing all of his sons. I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I'm done. 
Take my soul down to Sheol. Take it to the grave. So they're probably thinking that they've brought upon their father his worst nightmare, not just the loss of Benjamin, but the loss of all his sons, and just maybe, maybe the loss of God's promise to Abraham. And when they do return to Egypt, they're confronted by Joseph. And notice that once again, it's Judah who rises to the occasion. It's Judah. Look at his words in verse 16, and then Joseph's response in verse 17. We'll go 44, 16, and 17. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, here's our fifth use of the word, go up in peace. Go up in peace to your father. Taking into account what we heard last week, uh, Judah's confessing before him probably even more than just this cup. They're overrun with guilt, Remember? <laughs> At this thought of leaving a brother behind, they're overrun with guilt. They say, this is coming upon us because of our sin against our brother, Joseph. This guilt has seeped into them. This guilt has seeped in deep. And Judah, once again, as he did last week, stands in the gap. He stands in the gap. Verses 18 to 34 contain Judah's plea to Joseph, his continued plea to not punish Benjamin, and another attempt. So, you know, you heard Joseph. He's like, I'm just gonna take Benjamin the rest of you go back. He's like, no, you can't do that. You don't understand. You can't do that. I'll take his place. Look at verses 32 through 34, the last verses of chapter 44. Judah tells Joseph, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The motion is high. Most of us know what happens. But don't turn there. Don't put your eyes there yet. Wait till next week. <laughs> Joseph is moved. Joseph responds. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. For now, I think it's better if we just kind of step out of the details of this story as it's unfolding and take a look at the bigger issue at hand within it. What I've said from the very beginning, peace. Peace, the quest for peace, the need for peace and the reality of peace. And I want us to begin taking a look at the issue of peace by first considering it from Jacob's perspective. Let's think about it. Not just from today's text, but from everything we've learned up to this point. Let's think about peace from Jacob's perspective. And all, in spite of all that is happening in Jacob's life here, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, gives us, the reader, a clue. He gives us a clue at the greater work God is doing in his heart, and he does so by using one specific word twice. Go back to chapter 43. Look at verse 6 and verse 11. How does Moses name Jacob? He calls him Israel. 
and calls him Israel. Back in chapter 35, we won't turn there. You can write this down and look later. Back in chapter 35, verses 10 through 12, God blesses Jacob and renames him Israel, telling him that the promise is true. I will make from you a company of nations. A company of nations will indeed come from you, just as I promised your fathers, Abraham and Isaac. It's a reaffirmation of the blessing. However, from Jacob's earthly perspective, in these chapters before us, how he acts, how he reacts, he's completely motivated by this thought that that promise is in jeopardy. He has in his mind from where this promise will come. And he's terrified. He's terrified that it won't come to pass. From his vantage point, everything is at risk of being lost. But I mean, think about it. After everything that Jacob had been through in his life, he still remains, as we see, a proud and self-centered man. From his first failed efforts to steal the birthright from Esau in his own strength, through his conflicts with his father-in-law Laban, to his wrestling with God at the fords of Jabbok, God had been pressing home on Jacob every moment the lesson that his attempts to live out of his own resources would never bring him peace. Never. But what we see here in this story, 37 through 50, is the reality that the message of God's irresistible grace and God's loving favor sovereignly at work in Jacob's life time and time again was not taking hold in Jacob's heart. It wasn't taking hold. The peace offered by God time and time again through his covenant faithfulness remains elusive to Jacob. The irony, because we know the story, the irony is that the fate that Jacob fears most, losing his beloved son, was the very last thing that God had in mind. It's the very last thing. God does not want to shatter the peace that he's offered to Jacob. God wants to restore that peace. God wants to restore it to a new and better state, to overwhelm his heart. Rather than mourning the loss of Benjamin, Jacob will one day not only receive Benjamin back, but think about it, coming soon to a sermon near you, he's gonna receive Joseph back as though he was brought back from the dead. First, God's got some work to do. He's the potter. We are the clay. And God needs to break the toxic grip on Jacob's life that was held by his idolization of Rachel's children. God had to break that grip. It appears that Jacob firmly believes that the promise made to Abraham would come through Rachel's children So as he said in his own words, life without them looks like a living hell, a living shale, a living grave of emptiness, a place of hopelessness, a shadow existence, living without meaning or purpose. But God wanted Jacob to do what he had had Jacob do before. He wanted him to bury the idols of his heart. You might remember back in Genesis 35, Jacob had to actually do just that. He had to bury physical idols at Shechem. 
Now he's telling them to do the same thing, but this time in his heart. To make this a reality, God had to take Joseph and Benjamin out of the picture for a time. Jacob had to be left completely alone so that he would once again be forced to trust in God alone, to trust in God alone to fulfill his covenant promise. For Jacob to experience any bit of peace, to experience true peace, God had to put him in a situation where he would have to walk by faith in the promise of God over the many months before he would see his sons again. God put him there to teach him that he had to walk by faith in that promise. Some of you may be in a similar place even now where God is at work calling you to walk by faith in his promise. But what about the issue of peace from Jacob's son's perspective? Well, I think that it's clear to see that for them, Peace eludes them because of their brokenness and their broken relationships. If we go back to chapter 37, Moses was clear to tell us that the brothers couldn't even speak peace to Joseph. They couldn't speak peace to him. They hated him, right? They thought that they could find peace by sinning against Joseph and erasing him from their lives forever. That's one way to get peace, right? Just block everything out, sin. Forget the Lord. Why read my Bible? Why listen to preaching? Why do that when all I do is find myself being con convicted and moved towards a greater relationship with Christ? It isn't easy just to block it out and maybe remove good things so that I can have my way but where do they find themselves? Absolute turmoil, absolute desperation. They're facing the same fate they had tried to subject their brother to. Notice what they're facing. The cunning and crafty ways that they embraced had led them to only be tested and tried by those exact same ways. Some call it cosmic karma. What goes around comes around. We know the Lord is at work. And now they were found wanting, found in deep despair for the hurt that they brought, not only upon themselves, but also upon Joseph and the hurt that they're bringing upon Jacob. The works of their hands had proven futile. The fun house that they had built to rid themselves of the colorful carnival of favoritism thrust upon them by their father had proven to be way too expensive. It's too costly. When they went through the motions, it may have felt like a small price to pay for peace. But from where we leave the story this morning, what does it look like it's cost them? And this, this, my brothers and sisters, is where I want us to begin to wrap things up this morning. To consider how God works true and lasting peace in the lives of his children, even in surprising, unexpected ways. You see, just as God was at work in Jacob's life to rid him of his idols and lead him to walk a journey of faith that led to peace, 
And just as God was at work in Jacob's son's lives to convict them of their unrighteousness, to reconcile them to Joseph and cause them to fully embrace God's merciful grace and mercy that leads to peace. So guess what? We too have to join with them. We too must recognize God's work how God works through our own deep need for true and lasting peace. All of us need true and lasting peace. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are much like Jacob. We're much like his sons. Maybe we're even much like Sarah Winchester. All too willing to experience peace We will hold tightly to our own idols, imagining that life cannot have meaning and value without them. In the same manner, all too willing to experience peace, we too will blaze a trail of destruction that looks more like a carnival funhouse than a a peaceful walk along the narrow way that leads to our Savior's side. You see, whether we are acting out of despair or out of envy or out of something else, circumstance, whatever it may be, God is calling us to see that those ways are not the ways to peace. That pathway does not lead to true and lasting peace. So what is the path to peace? What is the path to true peace? and lasting peace. Well, it begins with rest. It begins with ceasing our striving. It's resting in the faithfulness of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. He left the glories of heaven and he left to navigate the many rooms and the, the winding pathways, the, the trick doors, the lightless windows, and the strange corridors that led straight to the cross. He found the way to the cross where he alone would suffer and die for our sins and rise again in triumph, that we might be reconciled to God and there find true, true and everlasting peace. There at Calvary on the cross, he suffered true despair. He suffered true loss. He suffered true death so that he might win peace for us. And by his Holy Spirit, pass that peace to us so that we might come to know him and confidently say, it is well with my soul. It is well. I'm truly at peace because Jesus is peace has become my peace. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you know this peace? Do you know this peace that that Paul describes as a peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you? Do you believe that this peace truly allows you to rest, to rest in God's promises and to rest as well in his good and perfect plan to carry them out? Do you believe that? And do you trust in the one who grants you this peace, knowing that he alone will guard your heart in and through anything that comes your way, anything, he will be there. 
That's my hope and prayer for you. Is that each and every one of you will come to understand this peace. This peace that flows from a truth we've been saying all along in this series. God is faithful. God is faithful. His purpose for you is good. And it's good beyond your wildest imaginings. Put yourself in the shoes of those brothers in Jacob. They have no idea what comes. In chapter 45, it's so exciting. Let's just stay here another hour and we'll get through it, okay? No, it's so wonderful. So where is God leading you? Where are you now? I look around the room and we've celebrated spiritual highs this morning and some of you are in the depths of spiritual lows. Though you change and your circumstances change, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is at work. He is good and his work is good. And he gives you peace. He gives you peace. He is faithful. He shepherds you through the turmoil. You don't have to navigate the house on your own. He'll bring you through it and take you to his father's house where you will be able to stand before him and what that peace is always meant to be for all eternity. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletin?